Amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're in week five in our first Peter series, Holiness and Hope. We're, uh, we're in chapter two. We're going to be camping out in verses one through eight. And we're talking about really tonight spiritual maturity. We're going to be talking about how God matures the church. Peter's writing a letter to a church who is being matured. He's, it's a church that's being matured through trials and suffering. It's being made holy through trials and suffering. And if there's one thing that we know about maturity, we know that it's painful. And we know that it's slow. We know that it's not instantaneous. We know that it's like an aging process that God uh, completes in us. You ever get flustered with your kids and tell them to grow up? You know, would you just grow up knowing that they can't because they're six, right? But, but, the, but the, the, the idea and the mind behind that is you want them to be someplace that they can't be yet. And sometimes we, we get flustered. Uh, the, the, the readers that Peter is writing to need to grow into maturity. It's a church, it's a series of churches that need to grow into maturity just like this church, our church, us as a church needs to grow into maturity. We need to grow physically, we need to grow emotionally, we need to grow spiritually. And uh, it's, the same, uh, it's the same with us as it was within. And what Peter has done is he spent a chapter, as we went through chapter 1, he spent an entire chapter showing uh, patience. With his readers, because when we start talking about maturity, we have to talk about being patient, and we're reminded of the patience that God has with us as we are very slow in our maturing and sanctifying uh, process. So Peter's been patient with his readers. He's been reminding them about who they are. He's just been drilling that down into them. He hasn't told them a lot about what they need to do. He just keeps hammering at them about who they are and what their identity is in Christ. And uh, he says, "Hey, set your hope." fully on grace. He says, be obedient to the truth. These are some of the things he did tell them to do. He said, have an earnest love for your brothers and sisters. We went through that last week. He gives sort of these life steps, in a way, for the church, for Christians. But then he also mentions, there was this one part where he mentioned not being conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. And today, we're going to see how he gets a little more specific about those passions in the opening of chapter 2. Because what Peter is driving at tonight, for our purposes, in these verses, is spiritual maturity. And this is what it is. This is what it is according to Peter. Spiritual maturity is putting away sin and pursuing a greater appetite for God's word so that our lives can be acceptable sacrifices of praise. So why don't we just dive in without any further ado. First Peter 2, he says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He said, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's just stop right there because what we see in these three verses is Peter sort of carving out a road uh, to maturity for us as the church as he was doing for uh, his readers. And you notice right away, man, the first thing he comes in, he goes a little negative and he says, put away. He says, put away malice. Now, we, we kinda, we've kind of gone through this, this born again phrase that Peter has used a couple times through uh, chapter 1. And a born again Christian is the only kind of Christian there is. All right, I wanted to flesh that out a little bit. If you are a Christian, it means you're a born again Christian. It's, it's kind of a redundant phrase. It's like saying, you know, wet water. It's like saying hot heat. You know, there is only one kind of Christian. It's a born-again Christian. So what Peter is doing here, he's, he's calling for people born again by the Spirit to put away, 
to strip away, to strip off all the attire of their old life. Kind of like when you, you know, when you get caught in a rainstorm and you come back in, all your clothing is sticking to you. Well, that is sin. That's malice. That's envy. That's slander. Those are things that stick to us. He's saying, rip those things off. Put those things away. Or kind of the way a coach might call his athletes to lose those things that just won't serve them well. As athletes, as they grow into better athletes. And the interesting thing is that a non-athlete is not expected to do something only fitting for an athlete, right? And we'll get in a little bit more into that aspect of it in a minute. Peter is saying, look, guys, it's time to be aggressive. It's time to aggressively, actively put away those things that will obstruct your obedience that we just talked about, that will limit your love for others. So put away, take off, unclothe, strip away these sinful and fleshly practices and impulses that once had their home as the passions of your flesh. And what he does is he lists malice at the top of the list. And, uh, you know, uh, if you've ever watched an episode of Survivor or any reality show for that matter, you, you know what malice is. You're really familiar with what that Uh, Word means, well, Ronnie, I don't watch reality TV, so I'm not sure I know what you're talking about here. No, no, you do, buckaroo, because malice is something that you can find uh, very deeply embedded uh, in your own heart. Malice, as defined here, what it is, it's, it's the intent to harm or the intent to injure another person. I have never intentionally harmed or injured anyone, Ronnie, how dare you? Well, I guess Peter's wrong then as he's writing this letter to the church. But let's look and see how he breaks it down. Because this is how he breaks it down a little more practical. And I think we'll understand what sounds like this kind of this medieval word when we see the way he breaks it down with envy, deceit, hypocrisy, and slander. Like I feel a little more connected with those words now. Like that kind of fleshes out for me a little bit. No pun on that. Um, And what he's saying is there's no place in the church for any of this. There's no place for it. In order for the church to be as Isaiah 61.10 says, be clothed in salvation and covered in righteousness, our longing needs to be for what Peter calls pure spiritual milk, which, of course, we can translate as God's uh, word. And so what he says here in verse 2 is he says, like newborn infants, he says, long for it. Long for that pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, what's interesting about God is that he's not against longing and desire. That might be a new concept for some of you. But God is not against longing and desire. Sometimes we feel that we have to purge desire. Like as if desire is the problem um, or if desire in and of itself is somehow ungodly or that desire is somehow sinful. But God created us. With desires. He created us with longings. He created us with cravings. It's a good thing that you crave water when you're dying of thirst. Right? Like that's a good thing because it's that longing to have your thirst quenched that leads you to water. Right? I know I'm being, this is all, you know, kindergarten, sorry guys. This is even below your pay grade up there on the the pavilion there. But uh, if you lack thirst, you'd become dehydrated and you'd you'd eventually die. But on the flip, all right? You'd be in trouble if you filled your mouth with gravel every time you were thirsty, right? Because gravel can't satisfy thirst. Like when I'm dying of thirst, you know, and I'm, I just got to have some water, and there's no bottled water, and I'm too snobby to, you know, put on the tap because I'm someplace that I don't trust. You know, and they got like, you know, there's, there's like a, a can of like, you know, I'm going to use your lingo. There's a can of pop there, you know. Um, I grab it, I drink it, and then I'm twice as thirsty as I was before I 
before I drink. It's the wrong liquid, right? So I, I reach for the wrong liquid. So what Peter's calling for is he's calling for longing. You notice what he says there? Long for the pure spiritual milk. He's calling for greater longing. We're going to hit this at the end pretty heavy. But he calls for greater, he calls for voracious longing. He calls for like hungry like a wolf longing is what he's calling for. Don't put a damper on longing, right? God created longing. Psalm 107.9 says, for he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 119.20 says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. 2 Corinthians 5 says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. So if God fills our longing with good things, then we have to conclude that greater longing for those things leads to greater pursuit of God and greater fulfillment of our longing, you following, when the object of our longing is God. That was a little bit of a Dr. Seuss for you right there, but we're going to keep fleshing this out. And what happens is, is that malice, envy, slander, hypocrisy, deceit, it doles and it dampens our longing. That's what Peter's describing there. Because at the end of the day, those things do satisfy us, but they satisfy a sinful longing, right? That thing that we have in us that allows us to act out those sins, they actually feel good. And they actually bring a measure of incomplete satisfaction to our hearts. So Peter calls the church to put away those malicious practices that once dominated their former life. So that their longing can be for the pure spiritual milk of God's word that grows a person up into salvation and can be filled for those who have tasted the goodness of God. Now let's unpack this a bit as we're talking about newborns and having this longing and this appetite that's like a newborn infant. Because you know what's interesting about newborns? I had one a long time ago. Um, I feel like I have one because there's about 907 kids in the church. Um, newborns aren't, you know, they're, they're not incredibly distracted I was going to say people, but I like creatures better, but you're all going to be offended if I throw that one out there. But they're incredibly distracted little people, right? They know what, they aren't incredibly distracted. They know what they want, right? A baby, a baby sleeps, a baby eats, and when they want to eat, they're just, they're not quiet about it. You know, they're a little like me in that way, but they're not very quiet about it. But that's how babies develop. That's how they grow. Peter is saying long for spiritual milk like a newborn so that you grow beyond these unholy, these immature impulses and sins that characterized your old life. He says, further your longing for Christ if you have tasted him. If you know what the goodness of God tastes like, then drink from the well of his word where you taste and where you experience his grace and his mercy and his goodness and his love and his kindness. Because the more you taste of that, the more you're going to desire it. You know, and we, we wonder at our lack of desire, don't we? I think about that for myself. I wonder about my lack of longing for the things of God. I mean, churches, man, they, just, they pull out their hair trying to find ways to whet people's appetite for God's word. But what else other than God can give you an appetite for his word? Which is what is the same thing that grows you up into salvation. What else... 
can create a longing for something other than the thing itself. Do you guys follow me on that? Notice what he says there at the end of verse 3. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let's chat for a minute about that, that, that strange little qualification on the end. Because here's what's, here's what's happening right there. For those who don't know the Lord, their longing is for something other than the Lord. Okay? At best, at best, they've only heard that God is good. They've only seen the effect of his goodness maybe on another believer or maybe experienced some of the blessings that come from his goodness by being in the presence of other believers, okay? They don't, but they don't long for something that they haven't tasted, right? This is what Peter's driving at. They might long for the blessings that a church and a church family provides, but they don't long for God. And there's a difference. Notice how verse 3 says, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. So the premise here is that we don't long for what we haven't tasted. Psalm 34, 8 tells us, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So, so do you see how he ties those two things together? There, there's somebody who have tasted, then they see that God is good, and now they're finding their hope and their security and their protection in their life in him because of what they've tasted, right? Notice it doesn't say see and taste. It says taste and then see. One has to taste before one's eyes and appetite can be open to the goodness of God and then long for more of it. That's why we don't see this idea, all right, of the seeker church found anywhere in Scripture. Can we just dispel that for a minute, all right? According to Paul in Romans 3, not my words, no one seeks God, okay? People are seeking something, but until God saves them, they ain't seeking God. If no one seeks God, then, why do we create a church environment to fulfill a longing unbelievers have for things other than God? What happens if by God's grace they become saved? And that's what we, we hope happens. What do we do with all the things we created to whet their fleshly appetite so that they might hear the gospel and repent of their fleshly appetite? I'm not that brilliant. I'm just thinking through these things. How do we remove those enticing objects of the flesh that were created to bring them in? How does this person become more and more like a saved person? How do they grow up into salvation? How does maturity then take hold if we're using something other than the pure spiritual milk of God's word for people to grow up into salvation? I mean, I remember when my daughter, when she, you know, we were getting her off the bottle. We were, yeah, we were bottle people, you can judge. But when we were getting her off the bottle, um, you know, one of the things we did, we didn't give her an option, right? We, we didn't like put the bottle and the solid food right there and just go, you know, whatever you got, it's a it's smorgasbord tonight, so just go ahead and pick. She would have picked the bottle because that's what she had the greatest taste for. She longed for the food which she had the greatest taste for. So spiritual maturity, as Peter is laying it out for us here, it's, it's putting off while having an increased longing for the spiritual milk of God's word as we grow up into salvation. So the Christian becomes more and more like a saved person. 
as they feed on God's word, and as they satisfy their appetite by meditating on God and on God's goodness. This, Peter is saying to us, this is the road to becoming a mature church. Well, if that's the road to maturity, what is the, what is the result of maturity? Let's pick up in verse 4. Peter says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, and Peter's going to lay out some Old Testament passages here. Uh, the first one's in Isaiah, and it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So then Peter says on the, on the, on the heels of that passage, in verse 7, he says, So the honor is for you who believe, whose longing for God is being satisfied by God. But he says this, but for those who don't believe, he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I'm just going to stop right there. Notice how he says at the beginning of verse 4, as you come to him. Do you see the access right there that believers have? Believers can draw near to God. Like right now, you can draw near to God. Right now, you can pray inside. You can say, God, I'm feeling distant. I don't know. I'm feeling distant. I'm, I was trying to sing these songs. And I know these songs are speaking these great things about you and your character. And I'm just, it's, it's feeling like there's emptiness inside. You can draw near to God anytime. You can draw near to God after you exit the church. You can draw near to God. You have access. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's Christ. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So your fears, our fears, some of our tentativeness, when we feel like that we're Man, I don't know, how do I approach God? What do I have to do first before I can approach God? Even as a believer, when I feel guilty for the neglect or for some sins that are still nagging at me, it means that we can still come to God. And our fears in coming to God to fill our longing for him, even in the state that we find ourselves in, are unfounded, actually. Because in reality, you are being built up in him as you come to him because you're already in him. It's there. The access has already been given opportunity through Christ. And then Peter describes Jesus as a living stone. And again, he, throws, he quotes these three passages from the Old Testament, from Isaiah in verse 6, from Psalm in verse 7, and again in Isaiah in verse 8. And these passages, what they're doing there is they're pointing to Christ being the chosen and precious cornerstone that God established through the foundation of his word. And so the church, okay, Follow me here. The church is built on the foundation of God's word that is joined together by Christ as the chief cornerstone, jo joining the other stones, the other living stones, all right? So the church, again, not a literal building, right? This is, building is not the church. It's corner, no pun, cornerstone elementary school. I didn't realize right now until that fit. Like, I, I feel like I need a fist bump from, like, everybody right now. Um, so obviously the church is not a literal building of stone, but it's comprised of living stones who find their life in Christ. Right? That's how Peter describes us. A living stone, again, kind of a peculiar way to describe someone, right? Last time I checked, uh, stones are not living objects, 
Okay, so it's a unique way that he's using this. I mean, I had, a, I had a pet rock when I was a kid. I'm just going to tell you, man, that guy was hard to have a conversation with. I tried. I had that thing till I was like 19. Nothing. Nothing came out of that guy, ever. So when Peter says living stone, he's alluding again to this Old Testament imagery of the physical temple where they offered sacrifices, where priests offered sacrifices to, a God, to God to atone for the sins of the people. Now, this is what I don't want us to do. I don't want to let our eyes just glaze over passages of scriptures like this, right? They feel a little technical. They feel like, oh man, you know, I, I'm reading it, he's explaining it kind of poorly, and I'm still not understanding what he's talking about, but let's try to not let our eyes glaze so quickly over passages like this, even though, you know, sometimes things, you know, it, it, you know, sounds like a period drama on PBS, you know, let's just be honest, you know, and uh, yeah, I know, you know how much I love those. That is true. But it's important we understand what Peter's driving at here, which at the end is really this spiritual building up and maturity in the life of the church. And where does that maturity ultimately lead? Well, he says right here, it leads to spiritual worship. It leads to offering ourselves as an acceptable sacrifice. So going back, our longing to God, our longing for God, actually drives us to worship of God. It actually drives us to worship God. It says there in verse 5 that we are being built up. We're being built up into a temple and into a holy priesthood that is able to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, we're going to get into this holy priesthood a little more deeply next week because he fleshes it out a little bit. But what we need to know today is that God builds us up to be a temple where we offer our love, we offer our devotion, and we offer our lives to him as spiritual sacrifices. Romans 12, 1, it's a famous verse. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, this is Paul he says, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, he says, your spiritual worship. So the culmination of all this maturity that, that Peter is, is, is instructing his churches and his people into, the culmination of it all is spiritual worship. You don't come to church to watch Scott and Cat worship. Like, that's not what we're doing here. We're, we're coming together as a people who worship a God who has changed us by the same spirit and made us into living stones. And without Christ, it says here, our, our worship would be unacceptable to God. So any other way that we try to worship without Christ is completely unacceptable to God. And then what comes with being a living stone, like Christ, is also being rejected by the world. He says it uh, right here, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Again, what do we get rejected for? Do we get rejected for worshiping God? America is still a pretty safe place to worship God, right? But we can feel like we're getting rejected um, as being somebody worshiping God when in fact we're just being a conservative, right? When in fact... We're just, uh, you know, we're standing up really hard for family values. Now, don't hear me say that those things are, are wrong in and of themselves to a point. Um, but, but that's not really what offering your body as an acceptable spiritual sacrifice is to us. It's being like Christ. It's loving like Christ. It's hating sin like Christ. It's offering our bodies as living sacrifice, knowing that Rejection by both men in the world and by men in the church, because that's where we find Pharisees, is not only possible, but it's 
improbable for us as we read through this. Now, let's not let this be theoretical, okay, for us, even as we kind of glide over that a little bit. I don't want this to be theoretical because the tendency for some of you is to think, well, all right, Mark, I get it, man. I, uh, looks like I need to sing louder. Looks like I need to give God more of my time. I'm catching the vibe here, Martin, right? But that's, that's not really coming to God with increased longing for God, is it? Um, you know, that's like an alcoholic thinking, you know, Jack Daniels is okay if I just add a little more OJ to my diet. You know, the one thing doesn't balance out the other thing. And Peter contrasts those who became living stones with those who reject Christ, who then he says became the chief cornerstone. And here's the good news. This is what he says for those who have become living stones like Christ, who are offering themselves as living sacrifices, who are suffering under the rejection of men, which is what was happening in this dispersion of churches. This is what he says. Those who believe will not be put to shame. He says those who believe will receive honor. But those who don't believe, he says, have rejected the stone that holds all things together because they're disobeying the word. Their sacrifices will not be acceptable to God. So he makes it really clear there. He makes it clear in such a dramatic way that as a pastor or as somebody, um, uh, a lay person, somebody out in the marketplace, somebody out uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the job market, uh, engaging with people, engaging with family members, um, going out to lunch with your friends, um, going out on bike rides, doing hobbies with people that you know. I mean, this is so crystal clear and back, black and white. I mean, we just, we kind of we shriek from it a little bit. Because Peter, Peter's really, he's, he's really not giving us a lot of wiggle room on those people that can have the ability to offer themselves as living sacrifices to God. Because it's only those who have tasted that God is good. So as we end tonight... I just want to talk a little bit about that longing and that tasting, okay? I want to focus in on that because what we've seen here, what Peter has told us is that maturity really is three things. It's three action words for him. It's putting away, it's longing, and it's offering. That's what he gives us here in these eight verses. Now, here's what's interesting, all right, as we get into this. Peter doesn't say put away longing. We've talked a little bit about this. I want to flesh it out a little bit more. You can't. You can't put away longing. Longing is not wrong. What happens is sin shifts the object of our desires to the wrong thing. So God, we know God gave us longings. We read that in Psalm, in those two, verse, those two uh, verses in the Psalms in, that, in 2 Corinthians 5. He also gave us his word to fill our longings. Okay? I mean, have you ever acquired an appetite for something that you used to dislike? I mean, is anybody... Was there something you hated as a kid and, like, you like it now? One of you, Tim, you're the only guy? I, I'm not getting any help tonight from you guys. Um, most of us go to food, right? That's the easiest way to find examples of that. I mean, I like flavors now that I, that I didn't like as a kid, so now I want radishes. I don't, you know, I don't know, you know. Um, you know, now I like lemon-flavored things. It's weird, you know. I, uh, I like flavors now that I didn't like as a kid, and, um, but those tastes didn't come to me by not tasting, all right? At some point, I said, all right, 
I'm going to try that lemon bar, and it's, it, it maybe is going to be lethal. And then, like, three pans later, after I'd eaten them all, I, I think I like lemon now. You know, like, it wasn't complicated. A baby longs for milk because it satisfied his hunger the last time he ate of it. He drank of it. And on the flip, I also know when something tastes bad, right? I also know when something's been spoiled. Have you ever taken a, a drink of rotten milk? I mean, I usually don't take a drink of rock and milk and go, nah, not so bad. You know, maybe this will work in my bowl of, like, you know, raisin bread. You know, you spit it out. You know, you spit it out of your mouth. Some of you, listen, are still gargling rotten milk in your life because you're still managing multiple longings of which Paul has spoken about here under the category of malice, okay? Envy and slander and hypocrisy. These are, things that are, uh, these are things that are completely and totally related to how we uh, deal with one another, how we engage with each other as the church body. And we can get really deep into those things and we can look at churches where there's a lot of disunity and there's a lot of discord. And what that is, is that's managing longings, sinful longings that don't come from God. Could that be you? Are you somebody that is managing multiple old fleshly longings? Because when you commit yourself to tasting God, when you commit yourself to tasting God's word, you will taste of his goodness in such a way that he will draw you into a deeper longing for it. But that's where maturity comes in, right? Because it's that constant going back and tasting of that goodness that develops a deeper longing for it. And here's the thing, a love for God's word is inextricably tied to a deeper longing for it, isn't it? We think, oh man, I struggle in my longing for God's word without realizing that the more we taste, the more we long, and the more we long, the more we're drawn to tasting. And the more we will simultaneously be putting away those other longings which means our longing for God becomes less obstructed, listen, by lesser longings, because they're lesser. They're lesser than the longing that we have for the pure spiritual milk of God's word. You know, it's so interesting that it's longing that Peter goes after. Is that interesting? He goes after longing. You know what he doesn't say here? He doesn't say, go get that spiritual milk, man. He doesn't say go to the store, go down the aisle, open the th- grab the spiritual. That's not what he says. He says long for it. We want to get to the object, don't we? We want to get to the object so bad, but the problem isn't just the object. It's our longing for the object. So we look and we go, well, there's God's word. God's word is there. There's Christ, his redemption, his grace. The cross, it's there. But so is football. But so is my vacation time. But so are my projects. The answer isn't necessarily lose your projects, lose football, lose vacation time. It's long for God greater than you long for those things. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? But here's the rub is that we don't trust that God will fill our longing the way that we believe those things fill our longing. 
We don't believe and trust that God will fill our longing the way that money can fill our longing. We don't trust that God is going to fill that longing the way our kids can fill our longing. Or Disney can fill my longing. Or my broken dream, that thing that I just keep going after, I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to pursue it to the end because I long for that. When you think of Jesus, here's my question. Were his longings filled? Were his desires filled? Well, yeah, you're all going to answer yes because that's correct. But filled by what? His constant longing for and filling by God and by God's word is what brought him honor as he gave himself as the most acceptable sacrifice. Was there any part of Jesus that just thought, man, I just didn't get what I wanted? Man, I wanted this other, I wanted my boy Judas to come around and I did everything I could and he just didn't. So that you can just check that one off, God. I just feel empty inside. No. All of Jesus' longings were filled. You know what word I like when I think about this? I like the word absorbed. It's typically not a fantastic word. Let's just be honest about that right now. But I like the word here, absorbed. I like to think that I can be absorbed by God's word. Do you think of it like that? You can be absorbed by God's word? See, we think we have to be the ones taken in by the word, but it's God that takes us in by his word and absorbs us. That's the power of God's word. We don't consume the word as much as it consumes us. But I have to, wait, open it to be consumed by it. But then you know what's strange? And thank you for following me through this stream of thought. Oftentimes we think of God as being someone we need to gain a greater interest in. You ever think that? I'm just, I'll be the only guy to raise my hand. Sometimes I think, man, I, like God, help, I, I just... I just wish you were a little more interesting because I got these things that I'm kind of into and they just captivate me and you're, you're somewhere there. Like, like I, I like that I'm, I, I like I'm going to spend eternity with you, but it, man, I gotta be, it's not grabbing me right now. We think of God as, as someone we need to gain a greater interest in. Like if we're honest, most of us will think, man, God, it, God he's just never going to be as interesting as, as sports. Or my car, or, you know, episodes of The Bachelor, or, you know, as my, as my friends, as, as hunting, as my motors, whatever. But if you look at the time invested in those things, you're absolutely right. Because your life has become a temple for those things. Your life has become a structure of dead stones for those things. You sacrifice for those things that hold your interest. I'm going to say that again. You sacrifice for those things that captivate you and hold your interest. But our interest in them is to the exclusion of God. We don't put away malice. We don't put away envy, slander, hypocrisy, and deceit. We put away God. And instead we long for unpasteurized milk. Because we long for what we feed on. So you cry out and you go, can I have interests beside God? Can I, Ronnie? I mean, are you saying that all this stuff has to go? 
Isn't it telling that in my heart right now, it's saying that as I'm thinking through this? I'm thinking through this right now as I'm saying this to you. I'm thinking of the things right now that I have a love for and that captivate my interests. And I am thinking that. All right, this is not just me just like informationizing you guys to death. I'm thinking that. Can I still have those interests? But isn't it telling that my heart is saying that? That somewhere in my temple, which is a living stone, which is growing up into the salvation that I have in Christ, I have a longing crying out to be satisfied by a lesser object than the living God. Isn't that telling? So you know what Peter is doing here as we close? He's facing us with just an uncomfortable Christianity. The whole Bible does that. We've sanitized the Bible. The Bible confronts us with uncomfortable Christianity. A lifestyle, according to Peter, that includes putting off longing and sacrifice. That's not a style that is set and designed for the consumer. I mean, you're not going to sell anything that way, right? Consumers don't like rejection from men. They like reception, right? Consumers don't need prayer because they found distractions, because they found solutions, because we found medications. Prayer is not for the consumer. Prayer is for the consumed. Why is Peter demanding so much of this people? We have to ask that. Why is Peter demanding so much of a people who are suffering? Come on, Pete. Why aren't you soothing these people? Why isn't he soothing them? Why isn't he saying, you know, man, it's okay. Guys, it's okay. It's been... Drink your lattes, go to Disney, check in at church every once in a while so that the pastor knows you're alive. I just want you to do that. I'm going to skip these next four chapters. And, uh, you know, the, the season premiere blacklist is on, so go relax and enjoy yourself. Why doesn't he say, listen, listen. Why doesn't he say, just add Jesus to your former passions and that will make life more wonderful? He couldn't say anything more opposite of that. Why does he say put off? Why does he say long for, sacrifice, expect rejection? Maybe because God is a good father who wants to nourish us with things he knows we need that go against the things we think we want. And maybe it's because he wants to grow us. and He wants to give us himself as the taste of of all goodness. But it's going to be hard because God's goodness tastes different than the world's goodness. And we are all familiar with the taste of the goodness of the world. But God says, I want to give you a deeper satisfaction. I want to give you a a greater fulfillment. Let's end, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 because Paul fleshes out a little bit more detail of what Peter's driving at here in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to end with that. And then we'll pray and we'll sing and we'll eat together. Ephesians 4. You pick up with verse 22 and Paul says this. It's going to sound very similar to the kind of language Peter uses, okay? He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then in verse 25 he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see how he's driving these things down? These things that we're supposed to be putting away? This longing that we're supposed to have for the pure spiritual milk? And he says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up. There's that, there's that word again, building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So this pure spiritual milk that you're longing for, it doesn't just fill you, but it flows out of you. And then verse 30 says, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along, and here's the word, with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And then he says this, chapter 5, 1 and 2, therefore, if we want to know how, this is what he tells us, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, what does it say there? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's the acceptable sacrifice of Christ. That we now have the ability as we mature into spiritual worship to offer God. Amen? Let's be encouraged by that. Let me pray. God, this is such a hard truth for us to come into contact with. To put off those things that are so easily characteristic of our lives and the lives of churches. Slander and envy and deceit and hypocrisy. Those are things we hear about constantly. So Lord, guard us against those things. Strip those things away from us. Take those things off of us. Lord, you've given us the strength to put away those things by the power of your grace. Lord, help us do that. Help us to long for the pure spiritual milk of your word like newborn infants. Grow us into this salvation, Lord, that you have already given us. Build us up as living stones that are connected by Christ with the foundation of the word underpinning us as the church. Lord, let these things be true of us. Grow us into a people that can offer spiritual sacrifices to you that are acceptable. Lord, thank you that you were in the midst of us and that this is your desire for us. And because it's your desire for us and you have changed us, it is possible. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the great love of Christ, the great sacrifice of Christ that allows us to be living sacrifices. Lord, change our hearts as we wrestle with this truth. Make us a mature people that is acceptable in your sight, we pray, O oh Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all of us said as the church together, amen.